Welcome to Psydactic, Residency Edition, your podcast resource to survive and thrive in your psych residency. I am Dr. O'Leary, and as of this recording, I am a second-year resident in the National Capital Consortium Psychiatry Residency Program. However, make no mistake, I do not speak for this program, nor do I speak for the Department of Defense, the federal government, or anyone else for that matter. What I say is my opinion, and I reserve the right to be wrong, so trust me at your own risk. It's a risk some are willing to take. References and recommended readings can be found at the end of the show transcript located at sidactic.buzzsprout.com. I am going to do a horrible job trying to pronounce some old French and German terms in this episode, so please do laugh at me, and then forgive me my linguistic ignorance. In previous episodes, I've hacked a path through electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation, trying to reveal some of the secrets in those jungles. Now, I'm turning my machete to a different landscape, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD for short. The name is confusing, because the writers of the DSM decided to name a personality disorder, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, or OCPD, but this podcast is not about a personality disorder. It's about a neuropsychiatric disorder. I'm going to try to wrap our collective heads around the concept of OCD itself, and for that, we'll need a little history lesson, which starts by asking the question, what's in a name? Indeed, what do we mean when we say obsession or compulsion? I'm going to start with our contemporary definition and then jump back a few hundred years to look for some common threads. For a modern definition, I will consult the Bible of Psychiatric Definitions, the DSM-5. Criterion A for OCD defines OCD's primary characteristic as the presence of obsessions alone or compulsions alone or both together. So we need to establish a clear difference between an obsession and a compulsion. In the DSM, both obsessions and compulsions have two components. I'll start with the two components of obsessions. Obsessions are defined as 1. Recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and unwanted, and that in most individuals cause marketed anxiety and distress. If this aspect of the definition of obsession seems broad to you, you're not alone. The logical structure of the sentences leaves it open to many interpretations. First, try to draw a Venn diagram. You remember those circles within circles they used to make you draw in grade school and middle school? Start with a circle around thoughts, urges, or impulses one might have. And then draw another circle encompassing those that are at some time intrusive and unwanted. The persons who qualify are everyone on Earth and those currently on the International Space Station as well. Now, limit those same thoughts, urges, 
or impulses to those that, in most individuals, cause marked anxiety or distress. I'm really just being asked to imagine a majority of people. Does this mean that if someone has recurrent, intrusive, and unwanted thoughts of silk sheets passing over their bare skin, that this doesn't qualify as an obsession? I'm assuming this wouldn't bother most individuals. Maybe I'm not in touch with the norm of silk sheet avoidance. But what if the thoughts of silk sheets were distracting you in class at school? A cool, smooth surface frightens you. You're going to lose your financial aid because you can't pay attention. If you can't tell, I'm very disturbed by the inmost individual's criteria, but let's move on to the second part of the definition of obsessions. Two, the individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them in some other thought or action. For example, by performing a compulsion. This means that an obsession can actually be defined by the presence of a compulsion, or not. If there's no clear compulsion, you just have to identify some attempt to ignore or suppress the undesirable thought or urge or image. Also, rather broad, but combined with criterion B, which I'll talk about soon, it makes some sense. But first, on to compulsions. Compulsions are defined as repetitive behaviors, for example, hand-washing, ordering, checking, or mental acts, for example, praying, counting, repeating words silently, that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. It seems hard to imagine that a person can have a compulsion without an obsession first, but the DSM gets around this by making an implicit difference between an obsession and rules that must be applied rigidly. Compulsions are not necessarily tied to obsessions if obsessions exclude rules that must be applied rigidly. Including the rules applied rigidly criterion may be a way for the writers of the DSM to tie OCPD to OCD by making inflexibility of these moralistic rules without stereotypical ritualized behaviors also count as a criterion for OCD. I'm not sure. But moving on to the second aspect of a compulsion. For a compulsion to be a compulsion, the behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress, or preventing some dreaded event or situation. However, these behaviors or mental acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they're designed to neutralize or prevent, or are clearly excessive. If you want to make a criterion so vague that a provider can, with minimal effort, force a patient to meet it, this is one. First, it relates a compulsion to the first aspect of an obsession, that it causes anxiety and distress. The action compulsion must in some way relieve anxiety or distress. But then they go further to say that a compulsion is not necessarily related to anxiety or distress caused by an obsession. Instead, 
It might just be related to preventing some dreaded event or situation. I wonder how this is different from relieving anxiety or distress. But this opens up the gates of OCD to those who compulsively do something for some vague reason, not really counting as a specific, definable, reproducible obsession that might bother most people. If you are a little confused as to what the definitions of obsession and compulsion are, then you're not alone. It seems the history of OCD is one of confusion and difficulty in definition, as are many psychiatric diagnoses. The remaining criteria help to improve the validity of the current diagnosis, and I'll briefly touch on them before moving on to some of the tidbits of history. Criterion B states that the obsessions or compulsions, they have to be time-consuming. For example, take more than one hour per day, or cause clinically significant distress, or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So by saying, for example, takes more than one hour per day, they make one hour a soft cutoff, and then go on to say that even if it's not that time-consuming, it could cause significant distress or impairment. So this is one of the major important additions to many psychiatric illnesses that prevent people who aren't particularly bothered by their obsessions or compulsions from getting a diagnosis and corresponding unnecessary treatment or stigma. The next two criteria are the obligatory not-caused-by-something-else disclaimers. Certain drugs, medical conditions, and other mental disorders might better explain a person's symptoms, and these should be systematically ruled out during the diagnostic process. Imagine for a moment that a patient is complaining of having to shower twice before going to work, having to shower again on their lunch break, back at home, which makes them late for some of their duties back at work, and then showering two or three times more when they get home. Their body feels filthy constantly. Merely washing their hands doesn't help. Only a shower will suffice. They have to use a clean towel to dry themselves, and so waste tons of time on the weekends washing and drying towels. Now, imagine that this patient lived two to six hundred years ago, before showers or baths were much of a thing. What might make them feel dirty? What might make them feel clean? OCDUK.org paints a history of OCD as one that was first identified as excessive religious scruples, although obsessions and compulsions were certainly present into human prehistory. At that time, parishioners may be so fearful of stains on their immortal souls that they are often chronically indecisive or waste hours of a priest's time in confession or in prayer or conducting rituals. Two reasons why these are some of the earliest examples of OCD are likely that, well, Religions guaranteed their influence over the populace in alliance with the governments of the time. They were just the norm. And two, if you wanted to be educated and able to write down your observations, you had to have a religious education. Therefore, the substrate of obsessions and compulsions were necessarily religious. The culture was forcefully religiously oriented in content. 
By the 18th century, academics with interests outside of religion were flourishing, and so the extent of their observations was also broadening. Obsessions of checking and rechecking illness anxieties and cleanliness, among others, were being reported. Patients with obsessions and compulsions were described not as scrupulous, but as possessing a limited form of mania or insanity. Terms like monomania or folie impulsive, impulsive insanity, or folie du doute, madness of doubt, were common. A French psychiatrist, Valentine Magnan, who lived from 1835 to 1916, considered OCD a part of the more broad term folie de degenere, which basically means degenerate insanity or madness. Others variously merged OCD with other kinds of illnesses or separated them out. More recently, the DSM-5 took OCD out of the anxiety chapter and elevated it, along with some other obsessional or compulsive disorders, to its own chapter. It appears the struggle to categorize OCD continues. So far, I've described how OCD was considered a disease of scrupulosity, a form of insanity or degeneracy. None of these definitions bodes well for a patient seeking help at the time. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a proliferation of attempts to explain obsessions and compulsions. OCD was often lumped into a poorly circumscribed disease category called neurasthenia, which basically meant exhausted nerves. According to David Schuster in a 2003 article in JAMA, European neurologists believed in a kind of energy that was delivered to the body through the nerves. Neurasthenia was the exhaustion of this energy. American neurologists often applied this term to patients to explain how the demands of their contemporary society, that modern society, contributed to physical and mental illness. OCD was just one of the ways this was manifest. What we could define as somatic illnesses today, including GI symptoms, fatigue, chronic inexplicable pain, were the main parts of neurasthenia, resulting in a plethora of treatments including six weeks in bed eating fatty foods for women who were, of course, considered fragile, or trips to expensive retreats in the mountains. Another French psychiatrist, Pierre Janet, used the term psychasthenia to give better definition to the psychiatric components of the exhausted energy. His formulation had different competing energies and predictable stages. Obsessions and compulsions were considered part of the third and worst stage. For Janet, OCD was a triumph of the nervous energies over the energies of higher mental faculties. Metaphorically, this is not too different from how many people conceptualize OCD today, but in practice, it really doesn't explain anything. In 1877, a German, Karl Friedrich Otto Westphal, was the first to really capture the essence of what is the modern formulation of OCD, calling it Zwingverstellung, compelled or forced presentation, or idea, leaving open the possibility of both mental 
and bodily behaviors to compensate for undesirable thoughts or impulses. It's nearly impossible to discuss an historical understanding of mental illness without mentioning the psychoanalytic perspective. Freud's formulation also contained competing mental faculties, like Janet's, but Freud, of course, proposed that OCD started in childhood and was manifested as unresolved conflict between primal urges and ego demands. Specifically, Freud conceptualized OCD as resulting from some kind of repression related to shameful but pleasurable sexual acts in childhood. Freud used the term zwangneurosi, the root Zwang, meaning forced or compelled, was translated to obsession in the UK and compulsion in the US, resulting in the compromise obsessive-compulsive disorder, which further reveals the confusion between what constitutes an obsession versus a compulsion because they were both derived from the same term. What they share is the force or involuntary nature of their appearance. Another term which may be hard to distinguish from an obsession is a delusion. The important part of distinguishing an obsession from a delusion is that patients with obsessions are, by definition, aware in some way that their thoughts, for example, that I'm dirty or that something terrible might happen, are either not reasonable or at least not desirable. A delusion, on the other hand, is an immutable belief that does not necessarily cause its holder any distress whatsoever. Someone with OCD will likely want their obsession to go away and welcome some kind of help. Someone with a delusion will likely detest you for trying to convince them that their thought is not really reality-based. In this episode, I've tried to give a face to OCD by briefly discussing our current and historical understandings of it. We have a long way to go in defining this illness. Even so, we have enough evidence now to know that at least a subset of what we call OCD is in fact a disorder we can track through historical time. The next logical question then is, what causes OCD? I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm going to say it's not your daddy issues, and it's not exhausted nervous energy. In the next episode, I'm going to demonstrate what I feel is compelling evidence that OCD is an organic brain disease. And while your daddy issues or your cultural pressures might give you a substrate for what your OCD has to work on, the primary problem is the ability for your brain's checks and balances and networking systems to function normally. This has been a presentation of Sidactic Residency Edition. I am your host, Dr. O, and until next time, be safe, but not too safe.